We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels. We're going through the life of Jesus in chronological order, in the order the events actually happen, so that we can know what Jesus did, said, and taught for ourselves, so that we can see it in his word and know him firsthand as closely as possible. And last week, we encountered Jesus as he began to teach in parables, Little stories that reveal big truths. And we learned that the purpose of Jesus' teaching in parables was actually to reveal truth only to those who genuinely desired to hear it. Those who did not desire truth would simply get a little story and nothing more. We also saw that Jesus went out of his way to tell us that this first parable we studied last week, the parable of the sower, is the key to understanding all other parables. That's going to be important for our study today. And this week we're going to continue with another major parable and five really short quickfire parables. We're going to begin in Mark 4 and then we're going to move over to Matthew 13. So you'll want to be in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. We're going to flip back and forth a little bit just to make things flow as simply and as logically as possible. So let's get started. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4 verse 21. That's where we're going to start. It says this, speaking of Jesus, also he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this verse is often used very effectively to terrify Christian teenagers. I've heard it used more than once at youth rallies, camps, and meetings. There's nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. So be good, because God is watching you. Jesus isn't talking about that here. And, and by the way, if you're a believer, you've got nothing to worry about. The blood of Jesus shed at Calvary covers and erases every sin you ever have and ever will commit. There is nothing on that roll of film that anybody can show at any point in eternity. If they were to pull out the record of your sins, there would be nothing on it. That's what the blood of Jesus did. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Some of you should be saying that much louder because I know you. <laughs> in this context... Jesus is talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel. Go ahead and write that down. That's your first fill-in. In this context, Jesus is talking about the gospel. He's telling his listeners that the mysteries of his kingdom would soon be brought to light. It would soon be revealed that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was explaining his parables in private to his disciples, but he wanted them to understand that it wasn't designed to be kept as a secret. He wasn't telling them in private so they could keep it to themselves. He was telling them something that would be proclaimed from the rooftops one day, would be shared with all humanity. It's light designed to be shared with everybody who sincerely desires the truth. That's going to be one of the themes of this week's study. Again, what we learn, what is revealed to us by the Lord is not intended to stay with us in this room. It's designed for sharing. It's designed for shining to others as well. It is like a light. It's not designed to be hidden under a bed or concealed. It's designed to be revealed and give light to others. Verse 24, 
Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. You might want to make a note of this in your Bibles. Verse 24 is more accurately translated, take heed how you hear. Take heed how you hear. So follow the flow here. Jesus has just told his disciples that his truth is ultimately designed to be shared with everyone. And then Jesus goes on and he says, take heed how you hear. So how you take in my word. With that context, he says, with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. In other words, when you receive the truth, if you release it to others, more truth will be given to you. More truth will be revealed to you. We talked about this last week. The purpose of God revealing his truth to you is not so that you can feel smarter. It's so that it can make you more like Jesus and then flow on to others. Jesus says, if you create that flow in your life, I'll keep pouring it in. More truth, more revelation, more knowledge of me, a deeper walk with me. If, on the other hand, you simply take in truth without allowing it to flow out of you, you'll begin to lose what was given to you previously. You'll find that the Lord is no longer giving you fresh revelation, fresh insight, and everything will seem to grind to a halt in your relationship with the Lord. As we learned last week, what we do with the revelation God gives us determines whether or not He gives us more. The Dead Sea is a perfect picture of this. The Dead Sea is dead because you have salt water flowing into it, but it never flows out of the Dead Sea. So what happens is the water evaporates, but as you know, the salt stays behind. So as that cycle repeats ad infinitum, the salt content in the water just builds up, builds up, builds up to the point where no life can be sustained in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. There's no life in it. And we see all these pictures of people floating because the salt content is so high Water flows in, but it never flows out, and the Dead Sea becomes a curiosity, a tourist attraction, but is absolutely useless in its function. It doesn't support life in any way. On the flip side, the Sea of Galilee, water flows in, water flows out. It's teeming with sea life. It provides food to people. It sustains life on its shores because water comes in and water goes out. It is a living body of water. And that's the difference. The only way to avoid becoming a spiritual Dead Sea is to have a flow through your life. God reveals truth to you. You apply it to your life and then you share it with others. God pours in more truth and this flow begins to happen and there's a freshness and a vitality to your faith. That's God's design. That's God's desire for us. Take heed how you hear. Take heed how you hear. Are you taking it in to just feel smarter? To add to your knowledge, are you taking it in to apply it to your life and then share it with somebody else so that God can pour in fresh revelation? We move on to the parable of the growing seed. This is Mark 4, 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Do you remember from last week's study what seed represents? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. The kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. 
For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus is telling us that the seed, his word, the word of God, the Bible, has a supernatural, mysterious power to it. As the soil receives it, as we take it into our lives, it produces a result But that result is one that even he who shares the word doesn't understand. It's supernatural how it works. So write this down. The work of God's word in our lives is supernaturally productive. The work of God's word in our lives is supernaturally productive. You know, what we do here on Sunday mornings is a direct result of our belief in this truth I wouldn't blame you if you thought, come on, come on. I mean, what can getting together to sing some songs and spend an hour studying a couple of pages from a book that's thousands of years old really do in my life? I wouldn't blame you if you thought that. But I've seen an hour of teaching a week transform my life radically. And I believe that God can and will and is doing the same thing in all of us as we gather here. You know, it's just incredible. We gather together, we worship the Lord, we study his word, and if you'll do that consistently, I guarantee you'll wake up one day and realize that you are a profoundly different person because of the word of God, that you see the world differently, that your relationship with God has grown significantly, and you won't be able to figure out, man, how, how did this just happen? Jesus says that's the effect of the word of God. It goes into your heart. It goes into your life like a seed into the soil. Then the farmer goes to bed. He doesn't know how, but when he wakes up the next morning, suddenly there's something poking through the soil. It's a little blade. And suddenly you can tell what kind of plant it is. You see the head of the plant. And then before you know it, there's a whole plant there. He says the farmer doesn't really understand how that happens. He just knows, hey, I sow the seed. If the soil receives it, This is what happens. God says it's supernatural what his word does. It's different to any other system. It's different to any other process. And we need to remember this when it comes to our own time in the word. Because if you're young in the Lord, if you're young in your relationship with him, you're new to the Bible, and you're reading the Bible and you don't understand it, I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't quit because God says this is a supernatural process. You might be in the word and you might come out and think, man, there's just dirt here. What's going on? Jesus is saying there's something supernatural going on in your heart. And before you know it, there's going to be a blade penetrating through the soil. And something's going to begin to happen. And I've realized it's so easy for us when we encounter new believers or friends or co-workers and they say, man, I'm just having a tough time reading the Bible. We're so quick to say, Why don't you read this book instead? Here's something easier to understand. And we forget that Jesus says, this is not like any other book. This is something completely different. This is a supernatural living thing. So if you know anyone in that situation, if you're in that situation, go to the Gospel of John. Pray that God would give you insight. Start reading. Don't quit. Get a good commentary if you need one. You can listen to our old messages online and they can help you. They can lead you through some books of the Bible. But we have to understand the word of God is just different. It's just different to anything else that we could pour into our lives. And it will 
always produce supernatural growth. The word of God establishes his kingdom in us as individuals and in us as his church. It's just supernatural. This is Jesus himself saying that about his word. Then he moves on to the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is a pretty well-known parable. We're going to come back to Mark 4 a bit later, but for now, flip in your Bibles back, actually, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Verse 24. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. You might want to note that. It's good seed that he's sowing. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. The tares being spoken of here are probably a plant called darnel. Darnel is a weed that is practically indistinguishable from wheat until the head of the wheat matures. So for a long period of time, all the way till the wheat ripens, you can't tell the difference between the two. And so in this agricultural culture, if you had a vendetta against somebody, if you wanted to destroy someone through sabotage who owned a field of wheat, you would go in there at night and you would sow seed from these tares, this darnel, because suddenly it would grow up with the wheat. The farmer wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but the darnel would steal all the moisture in the soil. It would steal space in the field. It would steal sunlight. And only when it ripened would the farmer realize, oh my goodness, I have all this wheat in my field. And it would radically decrease the amount of wheat that that field produced and would create huge amounts of work for the farmer. So that's what's happened in this parable. Verse 26, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? So the first concern is, was there a problem with the seed? Is that What's behind this issue? But we'll find out that's not the problem. Verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. We're going to jump around a little bit today, but I thought it would be good to just go straight to Jesus' explanation of what this parable is about. So if you'll just jump down to verse 36 in Matthew 13. We read, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. Again, the parable in public, now the explanation in private. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And I appreciate that they're doing this because they're actually taking heed how they hear. They're not just hearing something and going, cool, it sounds good. They're actually thinking, how does this apply to my life? What does this mean? What are we supposed to do with this? And that's commendable. I, I hope that we'll have the same heart towards God's word. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Big, big concept we need to stop here and talk about. The concept is known as expositional constancy. Expositional constancy. It's a big phrase that makes you feel really smart. It's something really simple. Expositional constancy is the term given to an idiom 
that is consistent in Scripture. When I say an idiom, I just mean a metaphor, an analogy, a word picture. So for example, every time a dove appears in the Bible, I'm not going to ask you what it means because half of you are going to say peace, and it's not peace. When a dove appears, it's representative of the Holy Spirit. That is an example of expositional constancy. So Jesus has said to us, this first parable, the parable of the sower we did last week, is the key to understanding all others. What does he mean when he says that? He's talking about this idea of expositional constancy. He's saying, I'm going to explain this first parable to you, and he did last week. And he said, the explanation is going to give you insight into other parables that I'm going to tell in the future. So here's an example. In both the parable of the sower and in this parable of the wheat and the tares, the field represents the world. We're going to see some more of this coming up. It says the good seeds, this gets heavy, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Jesus is saying in the same field, in this world, there are going to be my kids, sons of the kingdom, and there's going to be Satan's kids, sons of the wicked one. But he's using the example of the wheat and tares to help us understand, write this down, they're going to appear to be the same for a season. The wheat and the tares are going to appear to be the same. He's not talking about the fact that Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Hitler and Mussolini are going to be in the same field. He's talking about indistinguishable things. Son of Satan and a son of God that for a period in a place are indistinguishable from each other. He's going to tell us more about this. These are some of Jesus' heaviest teachings in my opinion a short time after this jesus would teach this in matthew 7 i'll read it to you not everyone who says to me lord lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father in heaven many will say to me in that day lord lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Write this down. The idea is that the wheat and the tares will be in the church. They'll be in the church. They'll appear to both be in the kingdom. Again, keep it in mind, he's talking about things that are indistinguishable from each other. Indistinguishable from each other. He's saying you won't be able to tell the difference between a disciple of me and a disciple of Satan within the church for a season. They're going to disguise themselves very well. Verse 39, he says, The enemy who sowed them, so the enemy who sowed the tares, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So when are the wheat and tares going to be divided from each other? At the end of the age. Verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so you might want to underline, it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This teaching is so heavy because Jesus is making it clear 
when he's talking about eternity, he's talking about heaven and hell, he's talking about judgment, he's not speaking metaphorically. He says there will. This is how it will be. It will happen with 100% certainty. There's a real judgment, a real eternity, a real heaven, and a real hell. There's a lot to talk about here, so let's just work through a few things. Throughout Matthew 13, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, famously, there are seven parables about the kingdom of God. And in several of these parables, he's going to reveal a disturbing truth that we won't really know with 100% certainty who's in the kingdom and who's not for a season. In the kingdom, there will be those who appear as though they're believers, but really aren't. They go to church regularly. They carry a Bible. They may even tithe. But they've never had a relationship with Jesus. They've never had a relationship with Jesus. Perhaps they're being unconsciously used by Satan, but more than likely they simply wanted a list of rituals and regulations they could check off to say, I'm good with God. Did that, did that, did that. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. You never had any interest in a relationship with me. You wanted fire insurance. He's saying, but I'm in the business of family. I'm in the business of sons and daughters. Those are the only positions available in my kingdom. Sons and daughters. Members of the family. These fake disciples are the tares, and Satan has planted them in the kingdom to cause confusion and to steal resources. Time, energy, ministry, attention, away from those who really are part of the kingdom. This is why we're so passionate about teaching the Bible. I know it's really easy to make an argument, man, this is heavy stuff really fast if you haven't heard it. This is heavy stuff if you're young in the Lord. This is heavy stuff if you don't know the Lord. Here's the thing. The word of God is supernatural. Just as we read, it's supernatural. That means even if we're teaching at this level, if we're teaching up here and a person is just starting down here, because the word of God is supernatural, He can bring it down to their level and minister to them what they need to hear out of it. But here's what I know. If we bring it down here and you've grown in Christ to here, you're not gonna be able to pull deep things out of the word of God if we say, no, skip that, skip that, skip that, skip that. We do our best to teach the word of God the way it is in the Bible because we believe it is supernatural. And every single one of us in this room is being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And the thing that you need to hear today from the word of God, you're gonna hear I believe that with my whole heart today. You know, when the church was born in in 33 AD, Satan tried to destroy it through about 300 years of persecution. Some of the most disturbing reading in church history you can do. There was a succession of 10 Roman emperors who basically made it their mission to persecute and exterminate the church. Christians were dipped in hot wax and lit as candles. They were skinned alive, put in boiling water and crucified upside down but you know what happened because of the persecution the church exploded it exploded the stronger the persecution the more the church grew and you know why because persecution pulls all the tares out of the field all of them 
Nobody has any interest in casually coming to church when somebody might burst through the door and kill us all today. Nobody comes to church to just check it out when that's the reality. It's like, you don't need to ask anybody, are you guys committed to the kingdom of God? Well, well being that we might die today, yeah, I think, I think we are. Suddenly, when persecution comes in, all the tares disappear and the whole field is wheat. And so the yield of that field is pure and it's powerful and it's effective. Even though people are being martyred, they're all real disciples of Jesus. They're all wheat. The more Satan afflicted and burdened the church, the more she grew. It's just the way it is. So Satan made a massive tactical error for almost 300 years. After 300 years, he realizes this isn't working. You would have thought with Jesus he would have figured out that that strategy didn't really work. That sort of backfired on him. But after 300 years, he finally realizes this isn't working. And he changes tactics. Very interesting. In 313 AD, with the Edict of Constantine, Christianity isn't just legalized, it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire. Satan, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, essentially joins the church. Joins the church, the powers of this world, the rulers of this world. Let's marry them to the church. And the church has been suffering ever since. You see, the greatest danger to the church is not persecution, it's infiltration. Why don't you write that down? The greatest danger to the church is not persecution. It's infiltration. When Christianity becomes easy and cheap, tears start growing like crazy, like crazy. Jesus is going to teach on this more in these next few parables. So is it our job to launch an in-depth investigation into every person in this church so that we can determine who is and isn't saved? I put together a short 300-question survey for each of you today. Please answer honestly. The lie detector's in the next room. But remember what Jesus taught in this parable. He said, the servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now I listen to a lot of pastors teach on this this week. And a lot of guys go way too far with this. They say, so you know what the principle is? We're not supposed to judge anyone because nobody actually knows anything. Please understand, Jesus is not saying, hey, you know what, the guy who's beating up his wife in your church you don't know, so don't judge, don't judge. Remember, he's talking about the wheat and the tares. He's talking about things that are indistinguishable from one another. Paul and Jesus will give much exhortation to deal with sin in the church when it becomes revealed. He's talking about those times when you don't know. And I think what Jesus is really saying is he's saying, don't fall into the trap of becoming hyper-legalistic in your attempt to divide the wheat from the tares in your own churches. Don't have a 300 question questionnaire. Don't have membership requirements that are pages and pages and pages and pages long so that you can find out who the true and the faithful are. Jesus says, because I know how that ends for you guys. It ends with you saying, we're the only real church and we're the only church that's gonna be saved. Everybody else in every other church, they're all going to hell. We're the true believers. 
This story ends with all of you living on a compound, okay? That's how the story ends. Jesus says, don't go crazy with this. But in telling us this, he's also said, but I want you to know this. I want you to know this. Be wise. Be aware. I am constantly floored how many times as believers we say, oh man, that person can't be doing anything wrong. They're such a great guy. As though that is the ultimate evidence of loving Jesus. He's a great, great guy. And as though the ministers of Satan, the tares in the church, are easily spotted because they dress in black and walk around like this all the time, you know. There's something about that guy. I have the gift of discernment, you know. The way he's constantly walking into corners and laughing evilly, it's just something's going on. Something's going on. Jesus says, listen, they're going to be indistinguishable for a season. And you just need to know that. You need to know that. He's also saying, if you go crazy with this, trying to figure out who's who, you're just going to end up killing the wheat in the process. You're going to burden the real believers with legalism. You're going to legislate them to death. It's going to get really ugly really, really fast. One more point on this parable. Jesus teaches that the separation between the wheat and the tares will take place at the end of the age. So the idea is we're in an age right now, a current world system where Satan is the ruler of this age. But that age is going to come to an end. And what is the new age? Well, Jesus goes on and he says, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So now when we reach that point, we're in the kingdom of the father. This week with the things going on around the world, I cannot wait till we reach the age of the kingdom of the father. That is something to look forward to. And when we pray, your kingdom come. That's what we're praying for. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, I want you to be longing for that. When you look and see what goes on in the world right now, Satan in charge, it should make you long for my kingdom. That's what it should cause to happen within you. So we're talking about this time when the wheat and the tares are divided. I'll just throw this out there. It's what's known as the great white throne judgment. And it takes place in Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. I could do a whole thing on that. You can pick up our End Times mini-series at the back today for free, but if you want to go look at it this week, it's in Revelation chapter 20. You can read all about it. So flip ahead to Mark 4 again, and we're going to jump in at Mark 4, verse 30. Mark 4, verse 30. Jesus goes on. This is all in the same day that he's sharing all these parables about the kingdom of God. Mark 4, verse 30 Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Then Jesus says, it is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So when this parable is taught, and if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this parable. When it's taught, it's usually taught and explained like this. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, his people that listen, the church is going to start out small and humbly, but it's going to grow. It's going to explode into this mighty thing like a mighty tree, and it's going to give rest and shade to people who are going to come into it like the birds of the air. This parable has a very, 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 very different tone to that when you look at a few things. So firstly, I want to draw your attention to the context. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom through this series of parables we're studying. He's giving us explanations. Parable of the sower, he's explaining why people receive the gospel in different ways. And he's giving us warnings. He's telling us how to identify the reasons people respond differently to God's word. And he's warning us, hey, there's going to be tares. There's going to be phonies in the same field as the wheat in the church. So pay attention to that context here. Secondly, the facts. The mustard trees that grow in Israel and Palestine are really bushes that top out at around three feet high. They're big for, for, for a herb, basically. They're big for a plant that produces an herb. But there has never been, ever, a mustard seed that grew into a mighty tree with branches big enough for birds to come and nest in. That's never happened, so keep that in mind. And then thirdly, our new fun phrase of the day, expositional constancy. In the parable of the sower, the first seed that fell on hard ground was, came, uh, was taken away by the birds. What did the birds represent in that first parable? Satan. The birds represented Satan. Jesus says, understanding this first parable is the key to understanding all others. In the same discourse, on the same day, he shares this one. Are the birds now suddenly a wonderful thing? Well, actually, birds, whenever they appear in Scripture, outside of a dove being the Holy Spirit, are a picture of sin and evil, expositional constancy. You put these three factors together, and suddenly you have a parable with a very, very different tone to what it first appears. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is telling us that his kingdom, the church, is going to grow over the centuries, but there's going to be some abnormal growth. There's going to be some unnatural growth. I want you to write that down. The growth is going to be unnatural in some ways. As a result of that unnatural growth, it growing into something that it wasn't really intended to be, the workers of Satan, the birds, are going to find it very easy to slip in and reside in the church. The church as it grows is going to become more corporate. It's going to become more political. It's going to move further and further away from being what Jesus intended it to be. But from the outside, people are going to look on and say, this is a wonderful thing. Look how big it is. Look at all this amazing growth. Isn't it wonderful that even the birds of the air feel comfortable finding rest in the shade of this tree. Isn't that wonderful? And we see this in so many systems throughout church history. Systems replace simplicity and programs and hierarchy swallow up freedom. All you have to do is watch Christian TV and you'll see there are some very strange birds nesting in this tree we call Christianity. Just put your hand on the screen right now. 
And I'm not slamming, by the way, I'm not slamming churches that are big in size. Jesus isn't slamming the size of the church. He's warning us about what it can turn into as it grows. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is saying as the church grows globally, but as each church individually grows, he's saying just just remember, the bigger you get, the more susceptible you will become to corruption and infiltration. And you need to be on guard for that. You need to remember what you were designed by God to grow into. The vision of your church should be the same whether you have five people or 5,000 people. It comes from the same seed. It's designed to ultimately be the same thing. Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful about what you grow into as the church. As we discussed last week, I want to encourage you to pay close attention to just how often Jesus and the other authors of the New Testament warn us to be zealous for the truth, to know God's word, and to grow up in the faith so that we can discern the difference between the things of God and the things of Satan, the birds that are going to try and nest in the branches of the church. And the reason I love teaching through the Bible is because you might say, man, Jeff, you're really belaboring this point. We're really camping out here for a while. You're really hammering this. But when you read the Bible in order, you go verse by verse, you realize, no, Jesus is really hammering this. Jesus is really driving this home. He's saying, guys, I don't want you to be ignorant about what's gonna happen as the church grows across the centuries. So when you see some weird things going on in the name of Christianity, when you see weird things going on in some churches, just remember, Jesus said it would happen. He called it. He called it 2,000 years ago, and he gave us his word so that we would manage to not get caught up in it. So when people point accusingly at weird things and evil in church history, I don't have to rationalize or defend it. I can just say, yeah, Jesus said it would happen. He said it would happen. We are under attack from an enemy who desires to infiltrate the church. And if we're honest, sometimes he succeeded pretty spectacularly. Verse 33, it says, And with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Flipping back to Matthew 13, verse 33. Matthew 13, verse 33. More parables about the kingdom. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And this is another parable that's normally taught in a positive light. We're normally taught, isn't this great? You know, the the word of God, the kingdom of God, the gospel is like leaven. You, You put it in some meal, you put in the bread, and it just works through the whole batch. So even though it might start out small, the the power in the kingdom of God just spreads through everything and its flavor permeates everything. Expositional constancy. This one's a freebie. Okay, and I'll tell you why. Leaven is mentioned 98 times in the Bible. In every single case, it is linked with evil. Go ahead and write that down. In every single case, it's linked with evil. This idiom is so strong that during Passover, Every Jew would get every ounce of leaven out of their house as a living symbol of their desire to get sin out of their household, out of their lives. And they would play a little game where when they would got all the leaven out, they'd put a small amount 
somewhere in the house, hidden as a game for the kids, and the kid who found it would get a prize. This is how seriously leaven was viewed as a symbol for sin in the Bible. So now you look at that parable and you go, well, what's Jesus actually saying? Well, he's saying pay attention to the meal. Pay attention to what's being fed to people. A little bit of corruption will have a big effect if it gets into what's being fed to people. Speaking about the kingdom, speaking about the word of God, a little bit of corruption gets into your teaching, gets into your theology. Man, it'll ruin the whole bunch. These sort of parables are important to remember because we love the idea of grace. We especially love the idea of grace because we're Canadian and we're non-confrontational. So we love to use grace as a way to avoid confrontation. So here's what it means. There are going to be situations in the church on a regular basis, hopefully not in this church, but in the church at large, where there's going to be some leaven put in. And our natural tendency, because we love grace and because we're Canadian, is always going to be, well, different strokes for different folks. Who am I to judge? Jesus told us a little bit of leaven affects the whole meal. It affects the whole meal. And he says there's going to be workers of Satan trying to get it in there, trying to pervert what's being fed to the people of God in his church. Stick with the scriptures. It's the only way to avoid that. Verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, the psalmist actually, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Let's slide down to verse 44 in Matthew 13. Verse 44 of Matthew 13 Jesus continues speaking. This is coming right after the leaven. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. So when I was growing up in the church, this is what I was taught about this parable. I was taught that the treasure is the gospel. The treasure is Jesus. The treasure is salvation. And it is so valuable that you should be willing to give up everything you have in order to acquire it, because it's worth more than anything else. But in the salvation story, who's the one who gave up everything he had? In the salvation story, who is the one doing the purchasing? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so while this is true for us non-Jews, I would be remiss if I didn't point out to you that in the Bible... Only the nation of Israel, only the Jews, are ever referred to as being a treasure to God. Only the Jews. They're his special treasure. We're a part of his kingdom too, but they're they're special to him. They're his treasure. Bible tells us he chose them because they were the least among the nations of the world. He chose the least, he chose the lowest, and he says, I'm going to make you my special treasure. So while this verse is still theologically true for us, I believe it's technically talking specifically about the Jews, but that's okay because in the very next parable, in the very next breath, Jesus is going to speak specifically to us, the Gentiles. Very next parable, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one of great price, 
went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, this is often taught as though Jesus and salvation are worth everything, so we should give up everything in order to acquire them. But Jesus is the one doing the purchasing and the divine exchange of salvation, not us. He's the one paying the great price. So we have a quick parable to the Jews, and then we have a quick parable for us Gentiles. For both of us, Jesus gave up everything. His very life in order to purchase us. Write this down. Jesus is the purchaser, and we are the pearl. Jesus is the purchaser, and we are the pearl. How do we know that this parable refers to us as Gentiles? Well, a pearl is found in an oyster, and oysters have never been kosher. They've never been kosher. So Jews and Jewish fishermen may have sold them to Gentiles, but Jews didn't trade in pearls between each other. They didn't have any value among Jewish people because they were unclean. They were unkosher. So this parable from Jesus would have been very odd being delivered to a Jewish audience by a Jewish rabbi. The pearl is a picture of us Gentiles. And the pearl is such an elegant metaphor, and I'll tell you why. Because a pearl is formed when an irritant, a grain of sand, a parasite, a piece of dead ocean material gets into the oyster. And it irritates the membrane of the oyster, causing the oyster to release this liquid that covers up and seals the irritant. And over time, that sac hardens and becomes a pearl. And so this irritant, this annoyance, is turned into an item of adornment and incredible value. But the only way for that pearl to be presented to the world, the only way for that pearl to be revealed, is for the oyster to die. You see, the oyster has to be pried open and give up its life in order for the pearl to emerge. It's a very, very elegant metaphor. The Bible tells us that we were bought at a price. We were purchased. And what was that price? It was the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. The life of our Savior. He gave up everything, everything he had in order to purchase you in order to purchase me. You are the pearl of great price. You. He gave up everything he had in order to acquire you. The value Jesus has placed on you is incalculable because how could you ever attempt to calculate the value of the Son of God and his life? You have an incalculable value. And I don't say that lightly. I say it because it's not theoretical. It's a value that's already been given to you. He's already paid that price. He's assigned that value to you. Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In his final parable of Matthew 13, in verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea, and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
That's simply a direct reiteration of the parable of the wheat and the tares. That at the end of the age, everything's going to be gathered. And like fishermen going through a dragnet saying, that's a good fish, that's not. He says, everything's going to be divided. Everything's going to be revealed like that. Verse 51, Jesus said to them, (laughs) have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Liars. Liars. If you have read the Gospels, you know there is absolutely no way the disciples understood what he was saying. There is absolutely no way, but they're, they're enjoying the fact that they're privileged. They're in this select audience, and so Jesus says, do you understand? And they're like, oh yeah, totally, totally. You know, you gotta separate the fish from the oysters, man. You know, totally get it, totally get it. It would have been great if they had said no. Could you explain it to us some more? Then we'd have more to work with. Verse 52, then, then he said to them, therefore, every scribe, A scribe was just a a Bible instructor, a Bible teacher. Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When Jesus talks about the scribes in this context, bringing out treasure from things that are old and new, he's just speaking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's saying these parables the things I'm telling you about the kingdom of God, these are going to turn the things in the Old Testament into treasure in a way that they've never been understood before. We can read the Old Testament in a way that those who lived in that era never could because we read the Old Testament in light of Jesus, in light of its fulfillment. And we can read the New Testament now in light of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to the new and the new points back to the old. And Jesus says, if you can understand what I'm telling you about the kingdom of God, you will have understanding of both and you'll find treasure in both. In conclusion, I wanna share three quick things. Firstly, may we all be reminded that we were bought at a price We were bought at a price. Jesus didn't flick a switch and bring us into his family. He paid the highest price, assigned to you the highest value ever assigned to anything other than God in the history of eternity. He paid that price for you. You were the costliest purchase ever made ever made but it was all said and done in that parable Jesus says it was the joy of that man to pay that price to acquire that treasure that pearl at the end it was his joy to do that the Christian life if we want to sum it all up the Christian life is about understanding that truth if you understand that truth you can go live however you want Live however you want. Because if you understand that truth, all you will want is Jesus. That one thing. Love Jesus and then live however you want. Live however you want. When you realize what Jesus paid for you, every sacrifice he asks you to make that seems huge suddenly seems inconsequential, insignificant. Suddenly you go from, man, he wants me to do that too. 
Is, is that it? Is that it? During those 300 years, when people are being martyred for their faith, in the Middle East right now where people are being martyred for their faith, people who are willing to do that are people who understand, man, I know what Jesus paid for me. I'll pay any price for him, and I'll still never balance it. The Christian life starts with understanding what he paid to acquire you. That's the motivation. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand anything else. All you'll hear is burdens. But when you understand that, you could never do enough for him. That's why Jesus says, hey, if you, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Not because it's a burden, but because if you understand what he's done for you, you will be searching, not for ways to pay him back, but for ways to display your gratitude. There's a difference. We're not trying to pay him back. What the Christian does is he says, okay, now my life, the rest of this time I have on the earth is for one thing, one thing, saying thank you to Jesus. That's it. Now in eternity, we'll worship him. But this life, this is our opportunity by the way we live to say thank you to Jesus. If there's one thing, one thing, that I hope my life says to God, it's thank you, thank you, thank you. He loves you, he loved you then, he loves you now, and he will love you forever. He laid down his life knowing everything about you, everything about you. Every time that you would let him down, every failure you would have, he knew it all, and he was still glad to do it. Secondly, take heed how you listen. Take heed how you hear. Are you like the Dead Sea where God's word comes in, doesn't really get applied to your life, and just stops, just hangs around there, doesn't do anything? Or does it get applied to your life, and then it is passed on, shined on to someone else? Are you paving the way for God to reveal more truth to you? Or are you still full because you haven't done anything with what he's already given you? And then lastly, I want to ask, has your faith been infiltrated? Is your life grounded in the word of God? Established in the word of God? Or are the birds, these messengers of Satan, coming in, telling you lies, filling your mind and your spirit with things that are untrue, telling you things that are untrue. Maybe they're telling you, hey, you've done too much. You're too far from God. Or God doesn't love you. God's left you. God's abandoned you. Listen. Ground yourself in the word of God. Ground yourself in the word of God. You need it. You need it. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first opportunity I want to give is simply for anybody here who has never given their life to Jesus. He loves you. He paid a high, high price for you. And what he says is that he wants a response from us. He wants a response from us, and he deserves a response from us. He says, I want you to come into my family, and if you'll do that, I will go to work in your life, and I will produce life where there has been death I will bring light where there has been darkness. I will bring hope where there has been despair. I'll do it. 
And so today, if you're ready for the first time to say, Jesus, I want you to take the highest place in my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I need your forgiveness. If that's you today and you're responding for the first time, would you just put your hand up and let me know? Just let me see you. Thank you. For the rest of us this morning, this is convicting to me as well, just this question, are we taking heed how we hear? Does the word of God come into us, change our life and get passed on? Or are there things that we know he's called us to do or called us to stop doing and we're just saying no? And we are spiritually turning into a dead sea where there once was life, everything is grounded to a standstill. If that's you, I want to ask you to pray in this coming time for the strength to act as needed to respond to the word of God. And your response is going to be lived out this week. It's not going to happen here. But pray for the strength to do that. And lastly, uh, I want to pray for any of us who might say, man, I've, I've begun to believe the lies of the enemy. And I've allowed them into my life because I haven't been grounded in the word of God. I haven't known what his word says about me. I, I want to pray for you. Jesus, in your mighty name, I pray for every person here today who is wrestling with a lie from Satan, Father. I pray that the truth and the power of your word and your actions would remove that voice of doubt, that voice of fear, that voice of condemnation. In your word, God, you called us the pearl of great price the object that you were willing to lay down your life to acquire the object you were willing to purchase with your blood and your own life father for any person here dealing with issues of self-worth or value or condemnation i pray in jesus name that you would fill them with the affirmation that their value comes from the price you have already paid for them. The highest price ever paid in the history of all things. And that their value to you is incalculable. Thank you so much for your love for us, Jesus. Oh, it is beyond description. It is above logic. It is a kindness in the realm of the ridiculous. And we are so thankful for it, God. May we live lives that proclaim to the rest of the world, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. May you be first in every decision, in every priority. May they all proclaim, thank you, Jesus, for saving me.